You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. Hope everyone's well this morning. If you have your Bible or device, you can go ahead and open to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And we're going to pick up in our journey through the book of Acts in verse 13. And be ready, go through verse 52. Um, those of you that have been with us, you know that, that we have done this in a timely manner. Um, the good thing is that you're the first service, and so um, I have to finish. I have to finish at a certain time. The second service, just so you know, there's risk involved with the second service. There, there's no real stopping point, but no, we do um, really try to be as concise as possible. But what we do at, at Covenant Church is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we began our journey through the book of Acts on Easter Sunday, and we will go through this journey, Lord willing, and finish up right before next Easter. And so this morning, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 13, and because of the content that we have to cover, um, I'm, I'm not going to give you a tremendous amount of uh, uh, overlap or introduction. Um, if, again, if you're new, then you can go back to our website and you can catch up um, relatively quickly because um, all of our sermons are logged there. And so I may say some things this morning that cause some question. You may not understand exactly what I mean. I, I welcome those questions um, afterwards, um, but it might just be because that you have not you know, been with us. And so um, I'll, I'll do my best to try to speak as plainly as possible. In fact, I, I think that this section of Scripture really does speak plainly. Um, I think that it's going to speak to us and it's relevant for us because the gospel, as we've said every week, it's continuing to make its way to the ends of the earth. And that includes me and that includes you. And so th this is relevant for us in 2023 because this is our story. And so if you're a Christian this morning, like this is how the gospel made its way to us. It was painful. It's been painful to watch at times. It's been painful to see the corruption from inside the church. It's been painful to see the persecution from the outside of the church. But it has been glorious to see the gospel continue to advance as God has ordained and through His providential plan and power. And friends, this morning is going to be no different. We're going to see some disappointment, but we should be when we leave here. We should be invigorated by the truth that God is sovereign and that His plan and His purposes will 100% succeed. So what we'll do, we'll talk through a section at a time. And in fact, in the middle part of this scripture, we have a sermon that Paul preaches. And so we'll slow down in the middle and kind of talk about two different uh, points that Paul has in his sermon. And then we'll close up with some application um, as we typically do. And so if you look down with me in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read through verse 16. It says, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So th this is John Mark. And so John Mark has now left the group and gone back to Jerusalem. There's going to be more on that later. In verse 14 it says, But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, if, if you remember last week, that they left Antioch, and so you might be thinking, well, that was a quick trip, right? They left Antioch, they came back to Antioch, where well, there's actually three different um, places referred to as Antioch in the New Testament, and so this is a different Antioch. In fact, we have a map, the same map from last week, that might help you kind of have a little bit better grasp on what's going on. If you see the Antioch on, on my right here, and your right, that's where they left last week. They dropped down to Seleucia, and if you see that red line crossing over to the, the island of Cyprus, that was the first part of Acts 13 where they proclaimed the gospel all the way through to Paphos. Now they've sailed back over to Perga so that on, on the left side, that red 
arrow that's going back up. And you see once they hit land, they go from Perga to Antioch in Pisidian. And so that's the Antioch that they are now. And so they are traveling rather quickly, but it is a different, it's a different Antioch. And so in verse 15, it says, After the reading, I'm sorry, let me back up, the middle part of 14, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And, and, and so again... They are accustomed to the synagogue. This is where the Jews gather to worship. And so part of their missionary strategy is to proclaim the gospel everywhere. Well, one of the places that they were to go and proclaim the gospel, and really for them, um, the easiest place to proclaim the gospel in the sense of its content, with the ability to connect the dots with the Old Covenant, as we're going to see Paul do, to the Jewish people who were familiar with the Old Covenant. When they're preaching to the Gentiles, it's, it's a little bit different approach as we've seen. And so they're in the synagogue, and they are there sitting down. Verse, verse 15 says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, All right, so this is the way I like to think of this. They put the ball on the tee form here, okay? Notice what it says. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. I feel like Paul's like, Well, as a matter of fact, I do. Interesting culmination of events. I don't know the intent of those leaders in the synagogue in asking for them to speak. I, w- I want to think by the way that it's worded that, that this is a genuine effort for these men to share a word of encouragement with those that have gathered. However, as we've seen the corruption and the disdain for the gospel from the synagogue, from the Jewish people, then it, it wouldn't surprise me if this was a trick, if this was a ploy. But for Paul and Barnabas, they, they really didn't care at this point. They fully expected the persecution and the animosity and the hatred coming from their own people, the Jewish people. Nonetheless, Paul, it says in verse 16, says, So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand. I, this is weird, but do you wonder? Is it this? I, I mean, I, I just wonder exactly what motion he did. With his hand, but, but nonetheless, he motions with his hand and said, and that's what Zach read at the beginning of our service, but I, so, so I'm not going to reread it now for time's sake, but it's broken down into two main parts. First thing to note if you're a note taker, this is Paul's first sermon that's recorded. It's very similar to the sermons that we've already seen the Apostle Peter preach along the way. And again, so, so a point to always remember as we're reading through this is that this is still the primary message of the Christian church. He's going to give them the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that we have to say it word for word in exactly the way that he says it word for word. But what I am saying is the message and the content of the gospel has not changed. It can't. And so in the first part of this sermon, in Paul's first point, if you will, there should be a slide on this behind me, he gives the Old Testament history, and he shows how Old Testament history shows God sovereignly working among his people. Now, I'm just going to skim through this. But in verse 17, you see plainly how God sovereignly worked in his people. It says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. And so that clearly is a sovereign act of God in that particular choosing. So 17 shows how God sovereignly works. Verse 18 shows how the Lord demonstrated great patience with them and it says and after about 40 years he man, this language is interesting he put up with them aka grace brothers and sisters this is our testimony too 
He, he, he's put up with us. He's patient. He's forbearing. He's kind. Verse 19 shows that in his patience and his forbearance and his kindness and part of an act of mercy towards his people and an act of judgment towards those who have rebelled against him, he overthrew nations as they conquest Canaan. If you were with us a few years ago before we moved to our new location, we went through the book of Joshua, we went through the book of Exodus, and we, we had week after week after week after week a front row seat to seeing the Lord sovereignly work among his people. If Israel was going to be saved, it was because God saved them. It wasn't going to be because of their strength or their effort or their ability or their intellect. Verse 20, he shows God sovereignly working by the fact that he gave them more leadership structure. He, he, he gave them judges, which led up to the prophet Samuel. Verses 21 through 22, Israel begged for a king. They wanted a king. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story. I encourage you to go back and read. Like, so he gave them a king. God, God often does that in our lives as a way of, of merciful discipline slash judgment. You want it? Here you go. Sometimes he gives us over to what we think we want in order to bring us ultimately back to himself so that we see that he is ultimately who we should go to and depend on and by faith trust in what's next but nonetheless he gives them what they wanted in a king he gave them Saul and this king was later replaced by David and, and as as Paul unpacks quickly I'll add Old Testament history y'all he leapfrogs a lot okay now again he's time constrained and, and this is a pretty much an impromptu sermon you know the guy said hey you got any words of encouragement well, I, I sure do. And so he stands up, and so, and so it's impromptu, but he makes his way through the Old Testament. Now, if you notice, once he gets to David, you recognize verse 22, verse 22 leading to 23. 23 is where I want you to look now. Of this man's offspring, that's King David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. And so he leapfrogs. Once he gets to David, he, he knows the Jewish view of King David. He knows that they hold him in high regard. They still recite and memorize his, his psalms and his songs. Like, so they think highly of King David. And so he brings them to King David. And then he leapfrogs over everything else and says, From this king, from your king, God sent the Messiah. You can tell that's, that's the direction that he, that he wants to go. Now, an application for us from this first point of Paul's sermon is this. The, the Old Testament, and, and I want to be clear here. The Old Testament is absolutely a history book. It, it is a history book. And it's factual. But it isn't just a history book. More importantly, what the Old Testament shows us is how to think about God. It shows us how God actually is. And the fancy word for that is theology. And, and so the Old Testament is a history book, but it's more importantly theological. I, I just want to show you a slide quickly that shows some action verbs that might be, be eye-opening to you in regards to the way that God works in... You got it, JT? Should have read... There we go. Notice again, I, I know we've already read this, but men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of his people 
Israel chose. That's a sovereign act of God. Our fathers and made the people great. A sovereign act of God during their story in the land of Egypt. Their, their stay, excuse me, in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out. A sovereign act of God of it. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, he put up with them. Verse 19, and after destroying the seven nations, the middle part of verse 19, he gave them their land. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until this... Uh, and until Samuel the prophet. Is there another slide? Is that it? Get one more. Verse 20. All this took about 450 years. He gave. Verse 21. Then they asked for a king and God gave them. Verse 22. When he had removed. Middle of verse 22. He raised them up. Jumped down to the end of verse 22. Who will do my will? Verse 23. God has brought to Israel a savior. I think you get the gist. All of the action verbs in this section and in this sermon are about what God has done. And so it's showing us and it's teaching us and it's obviously showing the Jews that exact thing, that this is a theological book. It's not just a history book. This is how we are to understand God sovereignly working. And so his point as he makes his way through the Old Testament history is he's telling them of how God is faithful and God is faithful and powerful enough to bring about his providential plans. Now, the second point of this sermon beginning in verse 24 is he shows New Testament history. Now, it's New Testament history for us, and in a sense, it's history for them because it's happened in the past, but, but a lot of these people were alive in the time that these events happened, but it shows that God is doing a new work, one ushered in by the old work. In verses 24 and 25, Paul speaks of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, most of you probably know, serves as a bridge character in Scripture, ushering in Christ. And, and so John the Baptist is sort of the link with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. John the Baptist's testimony was about who he wasn't. Now, I, I know that sounds weird, but that's literally it. He went around telling everybody, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I am not the prophet, which culminated in him as Jesus comes on the scene, pointing and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The purpose of John the Baptist and his baptism was to usher in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verses 26 through 27, Paul gives his own sort of commentary, if you will, of what John the Baptist ushered in as Christ came on the scene. And, and in 26 and 27, there's a, a, a phrase that mentions um, those Jewish people and those Jewish leaders that says, and, and they did not recognize or understand Specifically, they did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah and they did not understand him as such. But if you, if you go on and read in those two verses, what you notice is that still, even though these were God's chosen people, as Paul has already mentioned, their rejection of the Messiah that he sent for their salvation first, the Messiah came from them, still did not derail the plan. The condemning of Jesus by the Jewish people is what brought about the cross of Jesus Christ. Without a rejection of his own, there's never a cross. Now, I know that makes my mind, that makes my mind sort of like short circuit. I feel like there's smoke coming out of my ears. But what I want us to see and what Luke, the writer, wants us to see, and as Paul preaches this, what ultimately the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that God is sovereignly working. He can be trusted. He is faithful, regardless of the circumstances. 
There was never a season in the history of the world or in redemptive history that looked more bleak than when the Messiah was being arrested and killed. And that's why verse 27 says what it does at the end. They fulfilled them, fulfilled the prophecy by condemning him. John chapter 1 says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Brothers and sisters, that was the plan. John chapter 11 speaks of Caiaphas, the high priest, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. They all gather together in the, in the Sanhedrin, uh, which are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Caiaphas is, as John says, the unbelieving high priest. And basically, here's the, the message of the day. We've got to do something with Jesus. And one of them says, we must kill him so that the nation doesn't perish. And Caiaphas says, yes, we must kill Jesus so that the people don't perish. John gives us commentary in saying, this unbelieving high priest... Watch this, prophesied that Jesus should die so the nation doesn't perish, which is exactly what he came to do. See, there's this same act, the, the act of the cross, one minute for evil and God meant it for good. And praise be to him, he's sovereign. He, he's the one running the show. And so, verses 28 through 33 um, here he proclaims the gospel as we've seen throughout the study of Acts. And I want you to glance down there with me because this is important. And, and they found in him no guilt worthy of death, speaking of Jesus. They asked Pilate to have him executed. So what have we seen every single time the gospel is proclaimed? We have at bare minimum seen the death of Jesus. So the, the, the cross is always mentioned. Look down at 29. And when they had carried him out, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. There's always the burial, verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. There's always the resurrection. So we have the death of Jesus, we have the burial of Jesus, we have the resurrection of Jesus, verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. Almost every single time we see the gospel proclaimed in the book of Acts, you have the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and there's mention of the witnesses that saw with their own eyes that are actually the ones leading this charge and leading this church. They were witnesses to the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Verses 34, I know we're going fast, guys. Verses 34 through 41, the apostle Paul takes the time to compare David and Jesus. And here's this comparison in short. David saw corruption. You know what that means? David's body was placed in a tomb and David's body decayed. Jesus' body was placed in a tomb and the tomb is empty. And so, he compares David who saw corruption to Jesus who was raised to life. And, and he warns them, friends, he, he warns them he warns them that if they ignore Christ, they will perish. If, if they ignore Christ, they will perish. But I want to draw your attention to verses 38 and 39. I can't not reread these two verses. After he speaks of Christ being raised up as he did not see corruption in 37, 38, he says, and I can just hear his voice, this, this, this evangelist, this proclamation, let it be known to you, therefore, because this Christ has been raised, 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now, I normally give you a heads up when you're supposed to say amen. That was one of those moments. So I'm going to back up. We're going to try it again. That through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 39, and it's coming again. And by him, Jesus, everyone who believes, man, this is good, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Through Christ. Forgiveness. Through Christ. Freedom. And so for us, I think the takeaway for us in this section is that Christianity isn't merely a set of ethics or philosophy, even though it includes those things. I think one of the greatest misrepresentations of Christianity is that it's only ethical. A list of rules. Do's and don'ts. Or it's only a philosophy in a world of many philosophies. It is ethical. It is a philosophy, but it's so much greater than that. The Christian message is a proclamation of facts showing what God has done. And the reason I emphasize facts is because we have the same content in the first century that was factual about the death, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is still the exact same content that must be proclaimed today if sinners are going to be saved. Christianity is not like Plato, where you can just mold it and shape it. Has anybody ever made something that actually looks like you're trying to make it with Plato? Have you ever tried to make a horse with Plato? It looks ridiculous. I feel the same way when we in our new age, and it's not just in our new age, it's really been in almost every generation, we tried to mold and shape and make God's word pliable like Plato, and it looks ridiculous. It might make our hearts feel good. It might tickle our ears. It might make us you know, you know, feel a certain way about how we're living our life. But it's not the truth. It's not the truth. The gospel message has very specific content. And it's the same content that we are to proclaim and that we are to believe today. In verses 42 through 44... It says, and as they went out, Paul has finished his sermon. The people begged. I fully expect this this morning. And the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Okay, all right, maybe not. And, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, I expect this too. Many Jews and devout converts of Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue on in the grace of God. I love that idea as far as Christian fellowship. Brothers and sisters, continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, friends, listen. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Beautiful. But we know this is the book of Acts, right? We can't just end a chapter with the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. People are following around, encouraging one another to follow. You know, continue in the grace of God. It's, it's the book of Acts, so we have to look at verse 45. 
But when the Jews, and, and, and I want to point out that it says Jews here, and it probably refers to primarily the Jewish leaders, but friends, I, I think there can be a little bit of a misconception. It's not just the Jewish leaders that are anti the gospel. It's the Jewish community. Like, like the Jewish community was anti-Jesus Christ. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Speaking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Our friends are still speaking with boldness and clarity as we saw last week. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord, verse 47, has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed... All right, this is, this is a... This is a bomb. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Again, it's the book of Acts. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing. Those are the worshipers, the Jewish women. And the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Verse 51, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. You have the, the church showing this resolve. They're continuing to proclaim the gospel with boldness and with clarity. But they just keep getting kicked out of these synagogues. And there's so much persecution. And these like, like the power movers of the day don't like them. They hate them. They want them gone. They want them killed. Have already killed some of them. But then you see this growth. This consistent trending as the gospel advances. A question that I stopped and asked myself at this point, and I, and I think it's a question that some of us may be asking today, is, first one, how much more can they take? Right? Like, I mean... For every person, there's a limit. How much more persecution can these people take? How much more rejection can these people take? Which led me to this question, and, and we have no idea the persecution that they faced, most of us at least. The next question is, how do they continue? What are they thinking that allows them to have the courage and the boldness to continue in light of the persecution that they're receiving. Which led to this question, what are they believing about God that gives them hope that the mission will not fail? I think it's found in verse 48. At the end of verse 48, now I'm going to go ahead and give this disclaimer. I only have a few minutes here, and this may cause questions. This may cause you, now I, there are people that hate me because of what I'm about to read to you from the Bible. So, so just know, these aren't my words, but I'm faithful to Scripture. I don't have all the answers, 
But as I process and try to apply to my own life, what is it that they believe about God that helps them continue in the face of death? And they're sure that the mission will advance. And it's just, it's half a sentence. And it's in verse 48, and it's right at the end as it talks about the Gentiles hearing, rejoicing, and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, so, so the hearers, the original hearers, if they were listening to Paul's Old Testament preaching, they, they wouldn't be surprised by what they just read. Because what we see? All those action verbs. He gave, he brought, his hand. He did it, he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it. And so it wasn't like Jesus came on the scene and all of a sudden, we do it. It's not we do it. it it's God does it. And so the New Testament church, you and I, the hope that we have in continuing with the message of the gospel is that God is sovereign and he's sovereign over everything. Most of us salute his sovereignty in every area, but we get to this particular issue of salvation and we want to remove his sovereignty from the most important thing and think that all that's up to us. I want to read to you three confessions that most of you would have been affiliated with the Baptist faith and message. So for those of you that have a Southern Baptist background, this is the Baptist faith and message. Because what I just want to, for clarity of what I'm talking about, what Scripture is teaching here, the appointed here, it's the doctrine of election, it's the doctrine of predestination, it's all those trigger words that make some of us, our blood pressure just skyrocket. It's what some of us have been taught for years and years and years. This is cultish, this is not true, these people are evil. The big problem with that is the Bible. The Baptist faith and message says election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he, again, action, he regenerates, he justifies, he sanctifies, and he glorifies sinners. The 1689 London Baptist Confession. We believe the elect who are called by grace and are justified in the sight of God on account of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It says the same thing in just a little bit different way. It's all Jesus. The Westminster Confession, for those that have a Presbyterian background. Of course, the Presbyterians are more wordy. God's election is described as according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will. Predestination belongs to the secret things of God. Here's what we have to do. We don't have to feel good about this, but we have to submit ourselves to what Scripture plainly teaches. And that's literally all I'm asking. I'm not demanding we land in the same place. I'm not demanding this is something that we have to celebrate. Some people preach this in every sermon, and they're wrong for it. Some people avoid it at all costs, and they're wrong for it. Preaching verse by verse puts the cards on the table. So why does this matter? Why does this doctrine matter? And I'm going to try to be quick here. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, because it's true. <laughs> like it's what the Bible teaches. I could show you multiple Romans chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 says though they were not yet born and had done nothing, talking about Jacob and Esau nothing either good or bad in order that I just want you to see in order that God's purpose of election might continue and here here's the point not because of works because of him who calls 
the secret counsel, the mysterious grace of God, that God's purpose of election might continue in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, appointed, predestined, elected, chose. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me, that, that's the sheep, those are those who believe. All that the Father gives me, here's the certainty, here's the hope of the mission. They will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So listen, whosoever people, if you're a Bible person, you're a whosoever person. But if you're a Bible person, you are a, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom, listen, there's some transaction in eternity past between the Father and the Son. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And we could spend our time until your roast is burned, showing more scriptures that plainly teach. So the first reason it matters is because it's true. Second, oh, friends, listen. Second, it, it matters because it exalts grace. And there, read, read Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14. Who is the guarantee, this is Christ, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And there's more scripture right around that that didn't make the cut, evidently. So I'm just going to turn there. One fourteen, backing up to 13, in whom you also, when you heard the gospel, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him who were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The doctrine of election highlights the grace of God because that's the only, that's the single place you can look in gratitude for your salvation. He goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that this is the gift of God. Why? So that no one can boast. Third reason it matters is because it produces humility. Fourth, it matters because it secures our faith and our mission. I want to show you 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So here's the logic of Paul as he writes back to the Thessalonians. You received the word of God in the way that you did because he chose you. That's clearly his logic. In Acts 13, 48, it's clearly the logic that those who were appointed believed. It's not flipped. It's not that you came to believe and then you were appointed. The logic of Scripture and the mystery of the grace of God is that you were appointed, therefore you have eternal life. Fifth, it brings hope. And some of you are going, you want to scream right now. How? How does it bring hope? It brings hope because the worst of the worst of the worst of the worst sinners can be saved. The mystery of the grace of God is not that people don't spend eternity with God. If we understand the holiness of God, what's mysterious is that He saves some. And so the hope 
the hope is that all will be saved. Can I just say this? And I know some of I, I know what this causes. I've been I've been there, and I'm still there for the, for part of this. Okay. The most important question about you or your loved one or your friend or your whatever that's running through your mind right now is not are they elect. The most important question is what do you believe about Jesus Christ. That is the single most important question because every single person that trusts Jesus Christ will be saved. There's no category in the Bible for someone who wants Christ and doesn't get him. It's just not there. It's just not there. And so we should not be wrestling with the things of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. There's secret things that are God's. Election is one of them. So why does he let us know about it? It would have been really easy to not tell us. Right? Wouldn't we feel better about this whole thing if he just didn't tell us? But here's the deal. He tells us, and every time Scripture highlights the sovereignty of God in salvation, it's to give us hope. It's to assure us that the mission will succeed. It's the, it's the reason we do missions. If God doesn't save what are we doing? If it's totally on us, who's signing up for it? I would be horrified to stand before you every single week and lead one sermon, one mission trip, one anything if I thought the salvation rested on myself and the sinner that I wanted to believe it. But as we proclaim the gospel, as Jesus told Nicodemus, the spirit blows like the wind. And it's through the gospel proclamation, there's regeneration. There's new birth. There's new life. Lastly, and this is where it comes full circle back to what we're seeing in Acts. What we've seen, and by the way, if this is your first Sunday, we've, we've seen this literally every week in Acts. The God is the one that's steering. The God is the one that's most faithful. The sixth reason it matters is because it shapes God's providential plan. I want to show you from Matthew 24, 22. Oh boy, this is another amen moment. I don't know if we're there yet, but. And he's speaking of the abomination of desolation, the final days of the Lord. And in those days, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But listen, friends, but for the sake of who? The, what does it say? Elect, those days will be cut short. This whole thing is shaped, thing, redemptive history is shaped by. God saving his people. And as soon as he accomplishes the salvation that he has set out to accomplish, it's over. It's done. I get what we mean when we say this is secondary. Usually what we mean when we say this is a secondary doctrine is, is that we don't really want to argue about it anymore. I don't really want to argue about it. I've argued so I've like I've I've been on both sides back and forth in the same argument. There's tension, but what we must do, we must submit ourselves to what we plainly see in Scripture, and, and trust that God gives us this information that's difficult for our minds to handle and comprehend for our good, and so that we remain steadfast and immovable and abounding in hope, and so that when you tell me and I tell you, hey, continue in the grace of God, I know exactly what you mean. You don't mean you better get it right, buddy. You're going to lose this thing. I mean, continue in the truth that God has you. He's got you. He's not letting you go. And so the most important question to walk away from this message, this doctrine, is not, am I elect? Mm -mm. It's, have you trusted Christ?
personally? Have you trusted Jesus? He's the only way. He's the only way we're going to have peace. He's the only way we're going to have any sort of hope and comfort and ultimate protection. Not just from the world. That's not even primarily what the gospel brings. It doesn't primarily bring protection from the world. What's offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ is protection from the wrath that we deserve from a holy God. That Jesus Christ, His Son, took in full. Separated from the Father at Calvary so that you don't have to be. So that your sins don't surface unforgiven. Have you trusted Christ? If you would bow your heads. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.